Our reading today is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 16. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, Let us go in to him, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is the word of the Lord. All of the Christian life is fueled by the gospel. And the gospel is the source and then the means by which you do good works. You do not do good works in order to become justified. You do not come to Christ cleaned up, but rather you come dead, naked, blind, a wretch, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a pretty cool person like me, is not the way it goes. A wretch, wretch is an old word, it means a terrible person, it means like somebody you wouldn't want to be friends with, like somebody who you wouldn't want to have over for dinner. A wretch is like a kid who gets like expelled out of multiple elementary schools. The rebellion doesn't wait till high school. It starts young. That's a wretch. A drunk in a gutter kind of person is a wretch. Now, we love those sorts of people because God in Christ loved us first. And that's the point of this message today is that you must identify with the claims of the gospel, that you were a sinner, you were once an alien to God, you were once a stranger to God, but God reconciled you to himself through Christ on the cross, and now we have been invited to take up that same mission of Jesus. No, I'm not saying, the Hebrew writer is not saying that when you love somebody, you are doing what Jesus did on the cross. No, not at all. You could never do anything that even remotely approaches the importance of the atonement by which all Christians are saved. But Paul makes a statement in the epistles that says, through my sufferings, I am filling up what is lacking in the measure of Christ's sufferings. Now, believe me, Paul, of anyone, understands the sufficiency of the atonement. Jesus Christ's 
work on the cross was sufficient. So what is Paul talking about? Well, that happened in Jerusalem. Jesus died in Jerusalem. And Paul is going to people in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. They, they called it Asia at the time. We, we now call it, like, you know, sometimes you'll see it on a map like it used to be referred to as Asia. Asia Minor is what they call it now on maps. But what Paul is talking about is the news to take, the news of the gospel, the news of what Christ has done has not reached Turkey, and there are enemies against the gospel, and also just natural forces at work, bones degrading, ships, you know, going into the sea, tents falling apart. Paul is filling up what's lacking because it's not, the news isn't there yet. And so when we talk about identifying with Jesus Christ in sacrificial love today, we are not talking about participating in the atonement in some way that we are getting people saved through our works. But they need to know, they need to see a demonstration of God's love in order to set the context for telling God's love. Now, there is a very popular false dichotomy right now in the church at large in America. We have uh, kind of adopted this misquoted, you know, some people say St. Francis said this, but he didn't. Uh, And you've heard the phrase, it's probably one of the most common heresies, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Now, that's been twisted, and, you know, he didn't say it in English to begin with, but, but it's been so twisted that we have this idea that the major and primary means of sharing the gospel is by example. And that is clearly not the case in the New Testament. In fact, there is not one convert in the New Testament which is demonstrably provable that they were, uh, that they were uh, saved by an example. Every, every conversion in the book of Acts is always at a proclamation of the gospel or an explanation of an Old Testament passage or the retelling of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so do not for a second believe that you as a Christian, just by becoming hospitable, uh, can then say, well, I never have to open my mouth now. Um, so today I'm going to be calling you, and this is, a, this is core DNA of Grace Christian Fellowship, we're going to be touching the foundation stone to, of a central aspect of mission, but it's not the only aspect. It is central, it's near the center, but it is not the primary means by which people hear of the gospel. But it is the primary means by which they experience the love of God for the first time. And that's a difference, and that's an important difference. So what I'm talking about when I say union with Christ in sacrificial love, I'm trying to say that Jesus Christ unified us with him. It is because we are in Christ that we are being saved. And that union with Christ, that being with him, necessarily leads us to sacrifice. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying in verses 11 through 13, which we're going to examine. And that union with Christ, because he's adopted us, because he's brought us near himself, that is what fuels all of our ability to sacrifice. So I want to look at four aspects of how this plays out. First, I want to look at Christ's incarnation and his union to humanity in a spiritual sense. Um, When Christ takes on flesh, he is identifying with those who he will save in a way that no other religion can possibly even come close to. Um, Not only is Christianity a superior worldview and a superior religion in this regard, it actually is a central difference to Christianity that makes it so distinct from other religions. And we see how this plays out on the world stage in various, you know, observations that you could make about other religions and how they proselytize, how they, how they extend culture. 
And we can look at some of those. God's promise to be present with his people is over and over again a major element of the Old Covenant scriptures. And here the Hebrew writer applies it to Jesus Christ. We're going to see how he's attributing the words of Yahweh in Deuteronomy to Jesus. Therefore, once again, saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. And here, uh, he is not the same as the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That doesn't mean I and the Father are the same person. Um, but nevertheless, God's promise to be present with his people and how that requires a sacrifice to take place outside the camp. So God wishes to form a people who would be his people, and he has to judge sin. And we're going to look at the necessity of a sacrifice being done away from the camp. I'm going to explain all of the ideas behind the scapegoat. Perhaps you've heard that phrase in modern parlance, a scapegoat. Um, usually it's used in a very negative way, and, and most of the time when it's done in in our, um, in our controversies, either society at large or our families or a church, sometimes we do scapegoat somebody. But the original meaning of the term is actually quite okay. Our union with Christ in the Trinity is accomplished by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ's promise to send that helper. We're going to look at John 14. Before Jesus dies, he gives us a promise to come to us. And that promise has been fulfilled and is going to be fulfilled. And so looking at that leads us to the call to sacrificial love. It is the call on your life. It's the call on my life. It's part of following Jesus. It's part of being a disciple. It's part of being a Christian to sacrifice for others. So we're going to look at that and we're going to see actually how that is the greatest source of joy. If you attempt to find joy outside of union with Christ in his suffering, you will find nothing but death. If, however, you believe in faith, like Christ did, that doing God's will is the ultimate source or ultimate place of joy, then God, who also rose Jesus from the dead, will resurrect your life. And I'm not just speaking at the end of the age when he returns, you will be resurrected. He'll transform it. You finally will find your purpose. Many, many people are constantly looking for fulfillment in jobs and in friendship and family. And really, if they would just unify with the one that they claim to follow, a, a lot of, of the edges and the, the margin will, would all be cut away. And they, they would find a, a little kernel of joy in union with Jesus Christ. And I, I think this is vital to us, especially in our postmodern culture. So before I get into the aspect of, or these, these four elements of today's message, I want to just say a brief commentary on our culture. Our culture right now is moving from what, mo what most people, most uh, philosophers or most sociologists would call a modernist culture. And a modernist culture um, has a, a high degree of appreciation or value for objective truth, um, you know, logic, reason, etc. And we're moving into what might be known as a postmodern culture. Uh, some would say that we've hit that in the 80s, and now we're moving to a post-postmodern culture where my truth is not your truth, and you can be cool with me, and I can be cool with you, but we actually don't like each other. And um, this kind of quasi-religious idea that a lot of people, you know, say you can be spiritual without being religious. And there's all these dichotomies being broken down of the, cate uh, the classical categories of society and uh, the, the way in which we structure family. And so because of that, um, although I wouldn't necessarily argue that one is necessarily better than the other, we do have to reorient the way that we are approaching uh, sharing the gospel. 
And one of the primary ways that you will find that your friends will actually be open to hearing about the gospel is to have events, have moments in time where you're spending time with them, uh, having them over for dinner, letting them stay at your house, etc. Now, I'm not saying go and condone whatever. Don't join into their, you know, revelry. But at the same time, be open to uh, fellowship with them. And that will actually give you a platform in which they'll be able to hear. I read something the other day that said the most uh, common time in the United States culture, in the culture of America, that, that non-believers will come to church is actually just Christmas Eve. And it has nothing to do with uh, people inviting them. They just feel this sense of obligation. And there's this, there's this cultural Christianity. Um, it's kind of like a fly in the ointment, but a, a better metaphor than that. Uh, there's this cultural understanding of what Christianity teaches about what happens at Christmas. And so they feel okay with coming to church. But most of those people who come to church on Christmas Eve, a vast majority are not invited by anyone. And I think that's a serious issue. I think we need to reorient how we're uh, examining how we do evangelism. And a, a core uh, part of our DNA at Grace Christian Fellowship is community and hospitality. And some of us can take that for granted. I want to show why we do that. I want to show why you can do that and why you're called to do that. So let's look at these four aspects today. Christianity is not an abstract religion. Christianity is not a set of metaphysical statements or philosophical statements that say there is one true God, Jesus Christ is his only son, he created the world, we are his children. That, that is not the way that you learn Christianity. Yes, those are all true statements, but that's not the way that an unbeliever can come to the truth. They must be transformed by the gospel, which, of course, it includes truth, and it includes the delivery of truth, but it must be done as the full story. It can't just be Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. Well, what, it, what is sin is the implicit question uh, that most people would ask. And so Christianity must be lived out. And in fact, this shows up in the way that Jesus Christ comes to the earth. His incarnation tells us something about God. Uh, most religions, whether it's uh, who, uh, you know um, Hinduism or uh, Islam or any of the pseudo-Christian cults, that is false Christian cults, they have this idea of God as uh, transcending the world. And that's, that's a big term, but it just means that God does not find his origin in the created world and he is not contained by it. So for example, I myself as a person am contained by my physical body. Uh, I have a spiritual aspect and that is not contained, but certainly I'm not bigger than this building. As in when I'm in the building, I'm in the building. But when God's in the building, he's not just in the building, if that makes sense. God is not constrained by the physical world. He's not constrained by the, the natural order of things. He transcends them. He goes beyond. He cannot be limited by them. But most religions stop there. Some religions, uh, such as, for example, Buddhism, they have this other dimension that Christianity has both of these two aspects. But Buddhism teaches that, you know, God is this mystical force uh, that is kind of permeable throughout all of matter and life. And it's very similar if you've ever seen Star Wars to the Force. Uh, it's what binds us all together. And, and you know, um, I can't wait for the next movie. Um, <laughs> but but I, I just had to get that in there. But anyway, I think it's going to be great. Um, 
But the point is that that Buddhism is most popularly reflected in, you know, the teachings of perhaps Oprah, if you're of the school of Oprah. She she kind of posits this kind of you can be spiritual and whatever. And so we worship a God who both transcends the created realm and is imminently, that means nearly, uh, under, around, with, uh, however you want to describe it. These are hard ideas, but they're spiritual, and so we have to use some spiritual terms. Uh, he's imminently connected to it in the person of Jesus Christ. God, in the beginning, was hovering over the earth. Uh, in this, The Holy Spirit is hovering over the earth, and, and he is uh, preparing it for God's uh, special work. But in the incarnation, God actually unifies with those who bear his image. So we're also, Christianity is also the only religion that says uh, concerning the specialness of men. Uh, in Islam, God made man or God made Adam uh, in the Quran to, to be ruled and to, be, uh, to obey his commands. But in the scriptures, um, in, in Genesis, we see God invests in man his image. And this is a totally different uh, understanding of humanity. This is why throughout all of the world, there are Christian hospitals, Chris Christian universities, Christian libraries, uh, everywhere that Christians have gone, they have always done humanitarian efforts because we understand that humans innately have dignity. And one of the great reasons for that is not just that we have been born and made in the image of God, been created in the image of God, rather than arriving from the primeval muck. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no point from the primeval muck uh, which gives you purpose. But not only do we have this understanding that we were made in the image of God, but now as Christians, we are being made in the image of our creator, that is Jesus Christ, by whom the worlds were made, through whom and for whom all things exist. And so Jesus Christ takes on humanity in the incarnation, and this speaks to the radical understanding of the value in Christianity for human beings. God is not wishing to destroy all the human beings. He is wanting to bring them to himself. So Jesus Christ, the eternally existing Son of God, takes on, permanently takes on, humanity in the incarnation. And some will then say, well, God doesn't change. That's true. But in some way that does not violate any of the divine attributes of God, Jesus Christ takes on humanity and he does it permanently. And you want to know why it's important that you understand he does it permanently is it means that he's going to be faithful. Somebody who puts on a wedding ring and then days later or years later takes it off is unfaithful, right? The idea is that if you break covenant or you go back on your promise, you're seen as unfaithful. When Jesus Christ takes on humanity, he does it forever. And this tells us about what God is doing. He takes on flesh for two reasons, to fulfill the justice of God, because God requires for, a, uh, for sins to be punished, and in that punishment, it must be done in like order with the, the one who committed those sins. And then also the other aspect is to demonstrate part of the nature of the ones that he redeems. And, and we have been totally changed by the incarnation. It's hard to feel that outside of Christmas. It's easy to feel that when we're in Christmas, but we take it as, as truth and we attempt to rethink how we think about ourselves. Uh, one, one of the favorite, my favorite things from Ray, Ray Nethery was here last week. Uh, and one of my favorite things that he quotes all the time is actually in the Psalms. I know right well that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know that you are not only fearfully and wonderfully made, you're also being fearfully and wonderfully remade. 
you're going from glory to glory because you're being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And so in taking on flesh, Christ unites with his people. This is the only religion that teaches that God actually unifies with humanity. All of the other religions see human beings as inferior to God in such a way as to be subservient and to be uh, merely tolerated and uh, the worst of us to be done away with, uh, rather than understanding that God has come to show true covenantal love through the incarnation. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul is writing to the Philippians and he says, have this mind among yourselves. And now this, this is a command. This is what we call an imperative, a, a command to do this. He's giving them a command, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And at this point, Paul has just explained some of the aspects of who Jesus is. And so all of these imperatives, all of these commands are always preceded by a telling of the indicatives, or that is the things which God has already done. Because of all that I've just kind of explained, have this mind among yourselves. Because what Jesus has done shows us what we can do by grace through him. And if Jesus was able to condescend and leave his eternal throne, Proverbs says that he was ever in the bosom of his father, daily delighting in each other. John 1 says that they were with each other. We, we uh, talked about that, uh, I think, three weeks ago. If Jesus can come down and take on flesh and be born in a stable, then I can allow someone to eat at my house for a few hours. That is what I'm kind of getting at. And if you don't have A, you can't lead to B. And so verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus understood that part of his commission was that at the end of the sacrifice, at the end of the resurrection and ascension, he would be bestowed upon the name above all names. He understands the joy which was set before him, and that's how he goes to the cross. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be taken, or a thing to be grasped at, or a thing to be uh, ambitious toward, but rather, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's extremely lowly to take on humanity when you are the, incar- uh, the un, uh, un, uh, uncaused being by whom, you know, made the world. If, if you think about the, the depth of what's going on here in the incarnation, it's it's mind-blowing. And, and like everything else in the Christian faith, it must be believed by faith. It cannot be fully understood by the rational mind, although we are called to use our minds in the service and worship of God. And so we try to peer into these things, but we can kind of only kind of approach the edge, and then we have to look as if we're looking into some great cosmic canyon of God's uh, beauty. And so we look at these things, and we kind of get near the edge but we certainly don't understand the substance. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient. He was obedient to the Father's will. He did the commands of God. And so when I say that we have a command to be hospitable, that doesn't mean that we have to buy into this modern perception that whatever I do has to be authentic and it has to kind of spring from my own desire. But rather, Jesus Christ was commanded to go to the cross, and so he was obedient. And so because he was obedient, he received the name above every other name. That is what fuels our understanding of hospitality in the midst of understanding that we've been united to Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. 
his suffering, both the mundane, mundane just means worldly, uh, uh, physical, both his physical pains of normal life and his passion, that is what he did in being beaten, scourged, mocked, uh, having his beard plucked out. Men, if you ever pull out a hair, every time I pull out a hair, I try to, by God's grace, remember just for a moment, that hurt really bad. And I only lost one. They ripped out Jesus Christ's beard as he went to the cross. This is an intensely, you, you have more nerves on your face uh, and in your genitalia, but mostly on your face. And that is, your hands and your face are the most, uh, the most density of nerves right there. And they rip out his beard. They shove a crown of thorns onto his head. And this is what he suffers in his passion. But let me just say, not only is that beautiful, glorious, we worship him because of what he's done for us, but also I want to make plain that the incarnation tells us just how humbling he was uh, he lived just as much as his passion. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to stub your toe in the middle of the night. And if you don't understand that, then you haven't fully renewed your mind. Uh, Jesus knows what it's like to go to the bathroom and run out of toilet paper. Now, you can't take this to the logical extension. Obviously, they didn't have rolls of toilet paper like we have now. But, and I'm, I don't act, I would never defend the proposition that Jesus knows what it's like. But my point is, that if you think that that's sacrilegious, then you are actually living in a pharisaical mindset because Jesus went to the bathroom. And to say that is not crass. That's to understand how humbling it was that God became a man. And he not only died for you on the cross, which we love to talk about that, but we don't really love to talk about the fact that Jesus probably one time ate the last cookie and people were mad at him. And it wasn't <laughs> sin, right? Jesus lived as a man for 30 years. He knows every temptation that you've suffered. He did everything that you feel guilty about, but was you know that isn't sin, and he overcame it by understanding the, the law of God. My point is that Jesus Christ fully identifies as a man. He is not coming and taking on flesh and living this kind of like floaty, uh, walking on clouds existence his whole life. It was a real physical life. And so not only through the mundane passions, but also or the mundane sufferings, but also in his passion, he unites himself to uh, he unites himself to his people such that he is qualified and able. Now, you hear me say that and you might object saying, well, he's God, he's able to do anything. But in the way that I read the scriptures, it says that he was not able to be before he took on flesh. He was not able to be a perfect mediator and high priest for us because he learned something experientially. And what I'm saying is not that the eternal word of God, who is truth in himself, learned something, but Jesus Christ in experiencing physical bodily life acquires something that is hard for us to explain, but I believe this passage would defend very clearly. Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, had to be made. So he had to be made. It was necessary. That's another way to say it was necessary. It was necessary that he be made like his brothers in every respect. For what reason? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. It was necessary that he be made like his brothers. For what reason? So that he would be a right sacrifice. And then the next verse tells us the other dimension. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, 
I would even back off of this. I mean, the the volume on that idea is is uh, turned up to eleven. Uh, it's a big idea that Christ is able to be, but you could easily understand it as it's he's now able to be because we can understand that. I, I don't think the Son of God lacks anything on, in himself, but there is something here, and um, I you know you don't need to go off the deep end with this idea, but there is something here that Christ learns. Uh, something in his humanity by going through these. And the incarnation and the idea that God is, that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man is something that we need to press out and think about and meditate on and ask the Holy Spirit both to guide us from error and to lead us in, into the truth. And so Jesus Christ is able to be a faithful high priest, to be a right sacrifice because he knows what it's like. Every time you're tempted, you remember this verse. And you say to yourself, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be tempted, and he is therefore able to help me. In this moment, I can believe, because Jesus went through this, I can believe that his grace is sufficient. So, at this point, let's look far back in, the, in our Bibles. We're going to go all the way to Deuteronomy here in a minute. If you want to get out your Bibles, you're, you're going to Deuteronomy. Um, when Moses is, we've, we've actually spent about the last six weeks uh, or about six weeks ago, we were talking about Moses and the people of Israel going into the promised land, and we kind of left it with Joshua. And I want to go back there really quickly. Uh, when Moses is about to die, he's going to hand the baton to Joshua. So this is a marathon, you know, the 4,000 meters kind of idea. Moses is handing the baton to lead Israel over to Joshua. And before he does that, he commands the people to obey God's law and he does it by reminding them of his promise. So even in the Mosaic Covenant, the obedience of the covenant is fueled by remembering the promise. This is what the Hebrew writer quotes in verse 5. Deuteronomy 31, 6. If you want to turn there, you can, but it's on the screen. Be strong and courageous. He, sa he says that to the people of Israel. Now, if you remember Joshua 1, Joshua is told in verse 8, be strong and uh, courageous. And then Moses goes on to say to the people of Israel, do not fear or be in dread of them, that is the people who are living in the land that they're about to invade, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. What was the great cry that Moses said on the mountain? Lord, if you do not go with us, do not tell us to leave. For how will we be known between this nation and that nation unless your presence goes up with us? So Moses here has received a promise from God. God says to Moses, I will go with you. And then he's about to die. He's handing the baton over to Joshua. This is his last kind of thing that he can tell the people of Israel. He's been with them for 40, maybe 60 years at this point. I don't, I don't really fully understand the timeline here, but at least 40 years in the wilderness. And he is telling them the most important way to be strong and courageous to not fear the people of, his, uh, of the land of Palestine, what would eventually be known as Palestine, the promised land. Uh, it, the most important thing is that he says, God will not leave you. He says it at the end. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now, at that time, Jesus Christ was not on the earth. Moses is talking about Yahweh. And so Moses understands that Yahweh has made this promise. But then the Hebrew writer in verse 5 of 13 he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he goes on to talk about Christ in the rest of that chapter. So this promise is of old and it's repeated and it's reinforced. Even though Moses is about to leave, God is not. That's what he wants to communicate to the people. And so if you're looking to the leader more than God, then your trust is misplaced. I usually don't get rocked when national ministers who are very popular fall, usually because I haven't kind of made them the center of my faith. But just so you understand clearly, even if they don't fall, they eventually will die. I will mourn the day that John Piper, Douglas Wilson, Peter Lightheart, and thousands of other Christian pastors die. I will probably cry. I will probably make a pilgrimage to their grave. I know. I'm just, but the point is, I won't get rocked because they're men. And so Moses is saying to these, to these people, I'm leaving. God's not going to leave you. He will never leave you. And Christ takes up this exact same theme. Now, in no way am I saying that Christ is failing, but he isn't able in a physical body to be everywhere present on the earth, to be with all Christians everywhere. And so Christ, as he's going to the cross, understands the plan of God to send the Holy Spirit and begins to explain this to his disciples. Christ is taking up the exact same motif or theme as Moses does when he hands over the baton to Joshua. John 14, 16 through 20, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Not until we die and go to heaven. Not until you, you know, backslide far enough. And I mean, if you, if you truly have heard Jesus Christ's voice, Jesus says, the, the ones that my Father gives me, they're in my hand and no one can take them out. And so, at no, by no means take this as you can just do whatever you want. You can sin, you can serve God, who cares? That's not what he's saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit will be with his disciples forever. If you truly are a child of God, the Holy Spirit will never leave you. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, he identifies this guy who's the helper. Another term is advocate. Uh, or if you want to I think of it this way, uh, you know, kind of like your partner, right? He is with you on mission in doing this, a thing called walking out the Christian life, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, you, uh, nor knows him. Now, I don't see the Holy Spirit ever. And if you ever hear someone tell you that they saw the Holy Spirit, I would eagerly desire you to not pay attention to what they say after that for a few minutes and uh, think about what they're saying. Jesus, in saying that the, the world does not see the Holy Spirit, is not talking about physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence. He's saying that the, the, the world does not have the capacity to understand or to perceive the Holy Spirit. The world neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice the two things here, dwells with and will be. Dwells with is past tense, will be is future tense. It's a promise. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Have you heard that before? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in the book of Isaiah, it talks about Jesus Christ as the eternal father. And by that, he's not talking that... the oneness Pentecostals use that to say that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are all the same person. But clearly, over and over again, it's, it talks about, and in, in fact, even in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about Jesus being considered to be a father in the faith of those who are his children. 
And so the idea is that we are spiritual children of Jesus Christ in a sense, but not that Jesus Christ is the Father. Do you understand that idea a little bit? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus is not a spiritually deadbeat dad. He says, I will come to you. Now, I believe that this is fulfilled both in the day of Pentecost and will be fulfilled at the end of the, the age. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now again, Jesus Christ is going to be in heaven and they will not physically see him. But Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples, everything that you think you can see is not all that there is. And that there is one coming who will be a helper to you, who you'll be able to perceive. And you'll also be able to see me. He says, because I live, you will also live. And he's speaking to a group of human people who live at that time. He's not just speaking to the people at the end of the age who will be resurrected. He's talking about a thriving, a spiritual life that is alive. That includes a manifest promise at the end of the age. Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Now, I want to explain clearly, Jesus is making a promise and then saying, giving, a, you know, he's highlighting, drawing arrows to when it's going to be fulfilled. He's talking to a group of human people, his disciples, who are at the table with him that night. And he's telling them when they will know that he is in the Father. And when they will know that, therefore, that he is in them and they are in him. Now, clearly, Jesus is expecting at this point that they will be able to base their faith on some evidence. Jesus is not making them wait until the end of the age for them to know that he is in the Father. The proof that he is in the Father is not even the resurrection. It's rather the ascension, which takes place right before the sending of the Holy Spirit. The proof that Jesus Christ is vindicated in his life is the resurrection, but that is not just the final proof that Jesus is the Son of God. The final proof is the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Christ makes a promise to his disciples to ask for the Father to grant them the Spirit, right? And then he says, I will send him. The disciples were acquainted with the Spirit, but were not yet indwelt. That's that distinction. He, you know him because he dwells with you, but he will be in you. He's with you now, but he, doesn't, he hasn't taken up residence in you. But now, at the sending of the Spirit in Pentecost, he takes up residence. Christ promises to be faithful to them, adopting them as children, not leaving them as orphans. And this takes place in his spiritual coming at the day of Pentecost. Now, when I say that Christ comes in a spiritual way at the day of Pentecost, is that the Holy Spirit wishes to glorify Jesus Christ and causes us to be present with him. In the book of Ephesians, it says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. I don't know about you, I'm not even seated right now. But the book of Ephesians is true. How is it true? It's because the Holy Spirit makes it possible for me to be spiritually present with Christ. And so the idea here is that Jesus Christ, when he says, I won't leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. And in that day, when the Holy Spirit comes, the other helper who I'm promising you, you'll know that I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, you are in me, I'm in you. And our union with Christ is proved by the sending and giving of the Holy Spirit. That is not a doctrinal proof, that is an experiential proof that takes place at Pentecost. And this is the proof of our future hope for the resurrection. Because Christ lives, we know that we will live. And because of his resurrection giving us this proof, we understand that the ascension also 
gives a proof. His resurrection promises our future resurrection, and his ascension demonstrates our union with him. We're with the Father because he's with the Father. So, it's because of all this, all of what we've just talked about for the last 40 minutes or so, it's because of all of that we are called to and commanded by God to become those sorts of people who do what Hebrews 13 talks about. Letting brotherly love continue, visiting those who are in prison, visiting those who are sick, extending our homes to strangers, brothers and sisters, neighbors, strangers. There's a term in the Old Covenant, it's usually translated as aliens. That's not talking about UFOs, just in case you are thinking about that. Um, the point is that we are supposed to be able to love everyone. The, the two great commandments, Jesus Christ says, are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And those two things are the summation or the summary of the entire law. And Jesus Christ calls those the two great commandments. And so if you love God, as John, First uh, John says, the, the book of First John essentially is saying, if you love God and hate your brother, then you're lying about the first proposition because you don't carry out the second. If you love God, but don't love your neighbor, then you actually hate God. And the reason is, is because the two commandments go hand in hand. They are, they are locked. They're linked. So Hebrews 13, one through three, we've already read it, but I want to dissect it a little bit. Let brotherly love continue. This assumes that brotherly love is happening now. So if it's not, let's, we're on verse zero. Uh, we need to get to verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now that that's all kind of mishmash word. I mean, you can't really say that very quickly. Um, but the idea is that what the Hebrew writer is saying is that some of you have been visited by angels, and God has been doing something special, and by showing hospitality to them, you have actually been attending to the messengers of God. Now, you can take this word angels, which is usually talking about angelic beings. It also talks about this term as the messengers of God. So whether or not it's an actual angel or a messenger of God, you shouldn't care because the scriptures over and over again say that we're going to rule angels uh, when Jesus Christ returns. So the, the point is that whether it's a minister of the gospel, someone who's just, you know, an evangelist or a teacher or someone encouraging the brothers, or God has a special work that he's doing by sending this person, like happens so often in both the Old and New Testaments, either case, by showing hospitality to them, you are actively participating in the mission of God on the earth by doing verse two. And so by showing hospitality to strangers, you may not know in that moment whether or not that person is, as we like to joke about uh, from Blues Brothers, on a mission from God. <laughs> you guys need to see that movie. Verse three, remember those who are, in, who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated along with you because you are also in the body. The point is, it, look at the translators. They didn't put a capital B on this body. If we over-spiritualize it, we might say, well, we're going to remember those who are in the church who are in prison and remember those who are suffering in the church who are in, because we're in the capital B, body of Christ. No, this, the point is here that you're a human being. And in some way, in God's economy, you should show compassion to other human beings because you are a human being. So one of the most effective means by which you can demonstrate the love of God is by simple hospitality. It's one of the most effective. 
Now, of course, we are not making the false dichotomy, as we said earlier, preach the gospel, use words that is necessary. Throw that out of your brain, throw it into the round file, you know, file it for storage, never, you know, get rid of that idea. You can share the gospel both with words and with deeds, and one of them is not to be done without the other. This is actually a very important point uh, for all of those who are hesitant to share their faith or to ever speak about it. You're waiting for the day where your unsaved neighbor, brother, sister, parent, spouse, whatever, you're waiting for the day where they're going to ask you what's different about you. I have been waiting for years, and no one has ever asked me, except other Christians. And other people who I know are actually, I was just invited last night. I, I don't say this to toot my own horn, but I was, I was invited by somebody last night to share with uh, a young person who, don't, they don't go to this church, they so don't look around trying to figure out who it is. Um, and even if they did. But anyway, I was invited to kind of, you know, have dinner with them and, and encourage them and kind of talk to them about, you know, becoming a mature Christian. And the point is, that person's already saved. They're already mature and they already a, a little bit mature and they know they need more to be more mature. And so they're asking for help. But brothers and sisters, those in the world who have no light of Christ are dead. They can't even take their own spiritual temperature. They don't even know that they need him. They're blinded by Satan. According to the New Testament, the, the God of this age has blinded the, uh, the minds of the unbelievers so that they would not believe in the gospel. You will wait till your dying day and have deep regret if you wish to only spread the gospel by your example. And so you have to use words and deeds that go hand in hand. Opening your home to visitors for meals or a place to stay is one of God's means of sharing the gospel. It's at that context at a meal where they'll say something or you'll bring up something. And from there, you've got an open door and you can go to it. You can go for it. This is so central to the faith that it's actually a, a requirement for leadership in the church. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is instructing Timothy to install leaders in the various churches on that island. And he says it's so important that they have to be hospitable. Now, I think at this point, you can understand that Paul is not asking Timothy to ask them if they're willing to be hospitable. I think Paul is instructing Timothy to only let them pass the test if they are being hospitable, not if they're open to the idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm positionally open to suffering for Christ. You know, I'll check the box, I'll sign up for the newsletter, but I, I don't want to do it now. No, hospitable now. The Hebrew writer demonstrates the logical chain for our obedience in this type of sacrificial love. The scriptures, especially the New Testament, are a set of logical truths and propositions that have uh, an assertion of an idea and then the backup or the enforcement of that idea. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand how to read your Bible. And I want to explain, Paul does this, the gospel writers do this, but especially the epistles and uh, the law as well, of course, um, but especially the epistles have this sort of propositional truth that's laid out. And if you've ever taken a class in logic, you might understand the term like a syllogism. That's just a fancy word that says, if A and if B, therefore C, right? What he's doing, what the Hebrew writer is doing at this place in the text is he's saying, A, B, therefore C. And I want to show that to you really quickly. So he says in verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
Now, I'm going to give you the backstory for that. God had established a system of sacrifices in the Old Covenant by which the people of Israel would begin to learn that sin requires a judgment. Whenever there is sin, for God to be present with his people who have committed sin, there must be a judgment, and it says that their bodies are taken outside of the camp and burned there. So that's the first idea. So that's A. So B, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. A implies B, and B is true. We know B has happened. Therefore, C. Therefore, verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. There's a logical chain, and if you don't understand A and B, you will never feel C. Does that make sense, kind of? Let's, let's break it down. One of my favorite phrases in all of modern culture is break it down. Because I like taking things apart. I like taking computers apart. I like taking their programs apart. I like taking the scriptures apart, not in such a way as to break them, but to build them back up. And I want to look at the kernel of truth in each of these verses. We already talked a little bit about uh, the sacrifice, but God longs to be with his people. That's kind of the underlying idea before we even get to that verse 11. God wants to be with his people. The character and nature of God is that God is wishing to redeem these people. And in order to be with them, he cannot countenance, he cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, he has made a means by which they would understand that there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. If the judgment on that sin takes place in their midst or in the middle of the people, it would wipe out the people. That is because judgment from a holy God is amazingly powerful. And the judgment is so total that if it took place in the midst of the people, it would destroy them. So God commands the substitute, whether it's a goat or a lamb or Jesus Christ, uh, to go outside of the group of people. This is that idea that we talked about at the beginning. This is where we talk about the term scapegoat, because they would take a goat, the priest would take his hand and he would confer the sins of the people on the goat by taking his hand and pushing it on the goat's forehead. Um, And then from there, they would take one goat and slay it, and then one goat would be sent off into the wilderness. The sacrificial system in the Mosaic Covenant required taking the animal out of the camp to demonstrate the necessity of judgment on sin. That's why God did it. The scriptures are clear that the blood of bulls and goats, in, in fact, this very same epistle tells us the blood and of bulls and goats is not able to take away sins. God is doing it to train them to know their necessity, the need for judgment, and the need for mercy. This is done in the Old Old Testament as a visual sermon to prophesy about the need for judgment on sin and also the need for God to be merciful in the midst of his judgment. It is an act of God's mercy to judge the, the animal or his son outside the camp. Because Christ also suffered to form a people, we too, in sharing the love of God, must suffer. All those who desire to live a godly life will suffer. I need to memorize more Bible. I need to memorize the references because I've got a lot of it. Anyway, in this suffering, we are promised to be with him. If you're not out there outside of the gate with Christ suffering, then you're not with him. He's out there. And so... The Hebrew writer says in this kind of explosion of logic and faith and worship and and desire to do God's will, he says, therefore, let us go to him 
to be with him. This is absolutely our true worship, not singing songs. We had a great time singing to the Lord this morning. I love leading you in worship. I love when you guys are just, you know, celebrating God's victory, uh, shouting to him. It's great to sing songs, but believe me, your worship as a Christian is not just on Sunday mornings between 1030 and 1110 singing some songs. Your worship is every moment of your life. Your worship must come out your fingertips in the way that you work, in the way that you treat your spouse, in the way that you live and extend the kingdom of God. It must become manifest in all parts of life. And so this is our true worship, not doing religious services, although those are commanded and godly and and a good kernel, but they're not the whole ear of corn, if you want to look at it that way. Sacrificial love always is extended to others. A few weeks ago, I I gave the Sunday school uh, sermon, and I talked about the difference between laziness and thrift or uh, investment for the future or um, fastidiousness, stewardship. The idea is that investing in the future is always over other-focused. Why? Because investments always grow beyond your ability to consume the proceeds from them. And so necessarily, love that is sacrificial is investing because you're investing in the love of God being applied to others. If you're just focused on you and just focused on you getting uh, as much as you can out of your relationship with God for your own pleasure, growth, etc., then you're missing the, the very means by which God desires to bless you. Over and over again, the scriptures say that those who are faithful in extending gifts and the love of God to others are actually rewarded. And so this is our true spiritual worship. Verse 14, for we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. This is talking about the city, the heavenly Jerusalem of which we are all a part of, according to uh, Paul. And so verse 15, though, uh, sorry, through him, therefore, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Surely here, singing and thanksgiving, verbal praise to God is in view. But then verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That is, if you are worshiping God with mouth, with tongue, and deed, or not deed, but just with with what you do with your mouth, but you're never also having your hand be involved in it, then you're not really worshiping God. And it's not truly, fully pleasing to God. God wishes for you to give him a true spiritual worship, which is done uh, not just by singing, but also by extending God's love. Now, at this point, I want to make plain that when I'm talking about suffering, I don't mean that you have to bring people into your house who are known murderers and uh, will surely kill you as soon as they get there. Uh, What I'm talking about is actually the suffering that usually takes place because of your pride. Uh, Most of us are somewhat uncomfortable when we get around uh, dysfunctional people, broken people, um, sometimes physical malady, sometimes it's a personality conflict. The suffering that, that you have to go through as a Christian in extending the love of God to other people is not the type of suffering necessarily that nails you to a cross. It's the type of suffering that in which you are rebuked by the Holy Spirit for your pride in saying that this person's not worthy to come over to my house, or that person's not worthy of my taking 10 minutes to encourage, or you can fill in the blanks on the ideas there yourself. The suffering is to your pride and to your flesh and to your comfort 
And that kind of suffering is ultimately actually pretty good because you can't keep any of those things anyway. The longer you walk with Christ, the less willing the Holy Spirit is to tolerate those types of fleshly sins in your life. And so getting rid of these sorts of things that prevent us from sharing that sort of love is actually a really good blessing. And this is what I'm talking about. This is one of the ways in which God blesses you while you're blessing others. And so because of what Christ has done, we can share love with other people. So I want to encourage you, I want to charge you to think of ways that you can in the next month take actual practical steps. Who can you reach out to, either in the church or outside of the church? Who can you invite over for dinner? Who can you go and visit if they're in the hospital or sick or in prison? Um, please be of a sufficient age to go to prison. Um, please know 13-year-olds go and use some wisdom. But the point is, you have to become uh, a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. And I want to encourage, because we have so many single people, do not wait until you are married to have people over to your house or your dorm. Do not think that you need to have uh, a fully polished, clean house. I have uh, one of the cleanest houses I've ever lived in is the house I live in now. And you want to know why I say that? Because we all have probably been to my parents' house. Um, <laughs> and not to embarrass them. Not to embarrass them, it actually has been, it's been cleaner or less clean at various times. But you know what they never stopped doing is they never stopped sharing the love of God with people. And, and I've been to brothers and sisters' houses in the church where it wasn't that clean when I got there and it didn't matter. Don't create excuses for disobeying God's word. And don't wait until you have a wife and kids or a husband and kids or, you know, two cars to think that you can start to give and that those gifts can actually be very fruitful. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is beautiful to us. His work on the cross is so amazing that it not only paid for sins, but also, Lord, it purchased a grace that fuels and causes to be all of the aspects of our walk with you. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver us from complacency concerning the lost, those who are in the church who are hurting, those who are in the world who have no understanding of you, Lord, we pray that you would give us an understanding of the very love that you had to us, who at the time that you died, you loved us because not of anything of us, but we actually were warring against you. Lord, please open our eyes to the, the valuable joy that we can have in being united with Jesus, in identifying with his sufferings through hospitality, through sacrificial love. God, we thank you for the wonderful doors which you open. Lord, we ask for the grace to walk through each one of them. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.